All right. Uh, do, y'all, do y'all know someone or have you ever known someone who is very calm under pressure? Who comes to mind when you think that? Not you, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. most of us probably would say that actually, probably even the person you're thinking about being calm under pressure probably would say about themselves, not me, because it hardly ever feels that way, but we all have those people that we look at and it at least seems like they're very put together, they're very collected in those times where the stress and the pressure is heaviest on them, it's like it doesn't even phase them, and it, man, I can envy that kind of person pretty quickly, I don't know about you. I can covet their at least perceived sense of, of you know, placid confidence in the Lord. Uh, the greatest example, of course, of this, and this was more than just an appearance of calm, this was real calm, was when Jesus was on the boat with his disciples. It's a story that ought to make you grin at least a little bit that the disciples are are rowing against a wind and they are freaking out. That's the theological term for it, (laughs) freaking out, uh, thinking that they're going to die because the waves are swamping the boat. And where is Jesus? Asleep and astern on a cushion. Captain Bob, what would you do if your first mate were asleep during a storm while you were trying really hard to save Oh, Ed, Ed was, okay. So Ed is your guy, right, that you look up to as the calm in the storm. Well, I'll tell you what the disciples did. They were, they were absolutely frustrated with Jesus. They thought Jesus was not being calm but being negligent. And so they said, Jesus, how dare you? Don't you see we are perishing? What are you doing? Wake up. Do you remember how Jesus responded? Very famous words. Oh, ye of little faith. Then what was next? Peace. Be still. And the storm was calmed. That's a beautiful illustration, I think, of what David is getting at in these eight verses. The the middle verse really is the theme verse tonight. And I judge the middle verse to be 165. It's uh, four verses in. It's the fifth verse of eight. What does it say? Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. They can sleep in a storm. Now let's think about tonight what that looks like. What is great peace and how in the world do you get it? Okay, what is great peace and how do you get it? If you look at your bulletin, those are basically the two points. Uh, First, what is great peace? God keeps those in perfect peace, the Bible says, who, how do you get it, who keep his word, who have their minds stayed on God. So what is peace and how do you keep his word in order to get it? Let's let's think about the psalm and we'll ask both of those questions of these eight verses. First of all, how is the great peace described? Uh, Besides the fact that verse 165 calls it great, What are some of the other things in the psalm that give a description to this peace that David declares is ours if we'll keep God's word? What do you see? Bless you. What's that? 
They avoid sin, all right? So clearly, yeah, there's, there's some relationship here between avoiding sin and having peace, which makes sense based on the Bible. What else? Praising God for it. Loving God's Word, which contributes to the peace. Anything else? I'll point something out in a minute if you don't get it, but any, anybody see anything else? All right, I want you to look at verse 161 in contrast to 165. For example, if you just sliced this section in half, you'd have four verses at the top, four verses at the bottom. The first half would start with 161. The second half would start with 165. Look at the difference. 161, princes persecute me without cause. 165, great peace have those who love your law. What can you tell about peace, the peace that this is talking about, based on that contrast? Princes persecuting, and yet great peace. Well, the peace being described in this section, the peace that the Bible often describes, is a peace that is not based in circumstantial conditions but a, a peace that goes beyond the circumstances and that is rooted in the heart of the person. Okay? On the outside, what is David's life like? 161, princes persecute me without cause. That doesn't sound very peaceful. In fact, most of the time when we think of peace, just right off the bat, we think no war, right? Pretty much all times in history are either classified as wartime or peacetime. As if in wartime... When circumstances outwardly are not peaceful, you can't have peace inwardly. But David says here, it's precisely at the moment that I have no outward peace because all these princes are conspiring against me, that I have inward peace that nothing can take away from me. It's a peace given by God. It's a peace rooted in the nature and character of God. So it doesn't change. And it's gifted to me on the inside rather than on the outside. Uh, it says it, it, later on in the psalm, the very last verse, that all of David's ways had been before God. David is acknowledging God saw everything about David's life, all of his ways. In the Bible, ways means how you live, how you walk, what your, both your outward circumstances and your inward attitudes. God knew it all. And because God knew it all, God was able to minister something inside of David that contradicted what was going on on the outside of David. So go back to the boat where Jesus was sleeping on the cushion. Why was Jesus able to sleep on the cushion? Why was he not also freaking out? Well, because he had great peace. Tell me about that peace. What did Jesus have peace in? In that boat. God's will. God the Lord of the storm. God the Lord of the sea. Right? He had an inward confidence and an inward sense of calm that came not from what he judged by his senses, but what he knew by faith that anchored him in the midst of sight problems. 
you know, problems that he could see with his eyes or feel with his physical body. I think every one of us would agree that is the key to so much in life. Uh, you know, Paul who said, I've, I've found the secret to everything. You know, remember when he says that in Philippians? He's like, it's almost like he's breathless. Y'all, I found the secret to all things in life. I know how to be rich and I know how to be poor. I know how to have a lot. I know how to have a little. I know how to be hungry. I know how to be full. What is the secret? Do y'all remember? Peace in every circumstance. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God, in his character, anchoring the inner part of me, keeps me steady in the midst of changing circumstances. As somebody once said, it's a trick in life not to ride the roller coaster, but instead to stay on the platform. Right? You know, don't get on the roller coaster. Stay on the platform. You know, don't let the ups and downs of life snatch you around all the time. Instead, have a place to stand while everything is going haywire. Well, what is that place to stand? According to David, it's found in God, the God who sees me, the God who has given me his word, his law, the God who holds me and preserves me through everything. And so he says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing... No thing, no created circumstance can make them stumble. Now, I find it very important that he doesn't say nothing will ever happen in their life that could make them stumble. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say great peace have we because God doesn't let anything happen to us that could ever make anyone stumble. Instead, he says nothing can make them stumble. God will hold them, even though many things might happen in their life that would potentially be a stumbling block or a reason for them to be destroyed. God is the source of an inner peace that nothing in this world can give to you. Think about this. If it's nighttime, it's dark outside, there's no sun, right? How many light bulbs do you have to turn on or how many candles do you have to light to make it day? Wrong category, category, right? Yes, it's a completely different category. Light bulb light, even if it's stadium lighting, the biggest lights you can imagine, still doesn't make night day, right? Why is that? Yeah, we cannot, well, as they say, we cannot hold a candle to the sun. That's a, actually a cliche, right? You can't actually produce something of the same order, of the same category as the sun. Well, we, we read earlier in our catechism what God is like. He is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, right? Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. We can't hold a candle to that. No one else is in the same category as God. And so the kind of peace that that infinite, unchangeable one can give is unlike any other peace you can gain from anything else. This is why Jesus said in John 14, actually let me have you turn there because I want you to even look at this. Uh, John 14 verse 25. John 14, 25. Jesus is giving some parting words to his disciples And look at what he says. 
These things have I spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Uh, It's almost as if Jesus is giving them a little commentary on Psalm 119, verse 165. I am giving you the great peace that David spoke about, Jesus says. It's not like the world. It's not a peace that is circumstantial. It's a peace that's beyond circumstances, placed in the heart by God himself. Therefore, nothing in the world can take it from you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. doesn't matter what happens. You don't have to be afraid. You can have peace that, as Paul says, passes understanding. Circumstantial peace fails. Why? Why is circumstantial peace like a candle to the sun of God's peace? Think about that. What would you say? It's finite. It runs out. So whatever you have your peace in, if that thing runs out, then guess what else runs out? Your peace. What else? That's right. It's not only running out, but it's also always changing. So you see the difference here. God is infinite. Creatures are finite. God is unchangeable. Creatures are changing all the time. And so whatever we may put our hope in that is created, that thing falls short of God by infinite degrees, not just by a little bit. You got to think about that. Uh, God is not just like us, just bigger. It's not that way. Uh, God is his own category of, of person. Literally never had a beginning, never will have an end, doesn't have any limitations at all. Has absolutely no change ever in his being or in any one of his attributes. Wow. Do you see why Jesus would say, hey, I'm giving you a kind of peace that you cannot get from the world. You can't buy it. You can't plan it. You can't manufacture it. It must be given from God himself because God is the kind of character who alone can establish you regardless of what your circumstances may be. Charles Spurgeon says, We can procure or gain our own sorrow, but we can't produce our own comfort. Have you ever noticed that? We're really good at producing our own sorrows. Sure, you can do that all day long. But you cannot produce your own comfort. Just can't happen. Peace, that's right. That's correct. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, comfort meaning real comfort, not just creature comfort. Yeah, you can manufacture creature comfort, but 
creature comfort will run out. Yet you go to bed at night and you're real comfortable, but morning comes. You know, the air goes out in the middle of the night. Comfort's gone. The comfort of God, the peace of God, comes and it never leaves. And it never changes. That we can't produce. Now, why does he say we can produce our own sorrow? How, how do you produce your own sorrow? Maybe you can tell us your own personal ways that you produce your own sorrow. <laughs> Consequences of choices. Yep. What else? Not listening. Being stubborn. Right. Yes, exactly. Which definitely produces sorrow for them and probably even for you. Um, also, we produce our own sorrow every time we invest our whole heart and our whole sense of peace in the created thing. We set ourselves up for sorrow. When we say, out of this, I'm going to get my sense of peace. Out of my bank account, I will get my sense of peace. That, that mentality is setting yourself up for sorrow. And if even if that sorrow never happens in this life, even if you're one of the ones that whose bank account stays high forever until you die, guess what? Did you hear what I just said? You die. And so at that point, many sorrows will overtake you when you realize money can't buy your way to heaven, can't buy your way to God. You see? It's a whole different category of peace here. That's what I'm trying to get across. Uh, in fact, in the Bible, uh, look at verse 165 again where it says great peace. Uh, you probably, I think everybody probably does know this word, but in Hebrew the word peace is shalom. Shalom. And um, it's important to know about that word that it's, it means more than the English word peace. In fact, if you know about you know, Hebrew people or Jewish people, people who speak Hebrew, um, they greet each other with shalom. So the idea is not just peace, but the idea is almost well-being, like a total sense of well-being. I wish you well, body and soul. And so this is a whole different category of peace. It's full wellness, full wholeness both inwardly and outwardly, that comes from God. And so therefore, it's not temporarily circumstantial. Instead, it is focused on what God is and what God can bring. And so it's unshakable. Nothing can make them stumble. All right. Let's move to the second thing, which is how we get this kind of peace. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time, because David says a lot about it. Uh, if you want to have peace that can't be shaken, you have to have it from God. Well, the only way to get it from God, according to David, is to learn how to receive and keep his word. This psalm is all about the word, right? We've, we've gone over this many times in the series. David loves God's law, his word. And out of God's word, David learns God. David learns about him personally and comes into a relationship with God the kind of relationship where God is sharing all of his goodness with David and David is offering up his very life back to God in response. Well, David gives us some hints here as to how we can keep the word of God in a way that leads to peace. There are actually three things that I'll, that I'll point out to you. 
Uh, the first one is this, and you can find it in, the, in verses 161 through 163. David has a steadfast heart for God's word. That's the first thing. He has a steadfast heart for God's word. Peace comes when our heart is set on desiring the words of God. Um, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I much prefer talking to people in person than I do talking on the phone. Are you like that or not? I know some people can go either way. And a lot of people now prefer texting over either one. Uh, I am not that way. I like a face-to-face conversation more than I like speaking on the phone for long periods of time or texting even, although I do both of them very regularly. However, when I was about 16 years old, I was highly motivated to talk on the phone (laughs) for long stretches at a time. Um, Y'all can guess who and why I was motivated for that. She's not in here right now, but my mom is in here, and she saw it from the other, other angle, where I, I was very motivated to speak on the phone. I didn't like talking on the phone, even less then than now, and yet I didn't mind it at all. Why? Twitter-pated. Yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> Twitter-pated. Yes, I was infatuated. I was in love. I had, a, I had something that I valued really highly that I could only get through that medium. And so it made me love that medium, even when I didn't normally love that medium. And so this is what I think about when somebody says, but Stan, you love to read, and so it's not fair. I hate to read. You can know God better because you love to read, and I don't love to read. Here's my response. No. (laughs) If you love God, and you know God is communicating to you through the book, of the Bible, guess what you'll love? To read the Bible. It's pretty simple. Uh, In fact, I would say about my own story, I can't tell whether I love to read and then I love the Bible or whether I love the Bible and then I love to read. I actually think it's probably more the second one than the first one. And when I catalog the things that I do read, it's the vast majority related to the Bible and has been for a long time. And so I think God can do that in any of our hearts. If he can do it in mine, he can do it in yours, where God develops this sense of delight in the, 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 the activity of reading Scripture because it's in reading Scripture that you get a connection with God. Um, it's not about just simply being an egghead. It's about having a heart full of the goodness and value of the Lord, which you have learned to realize you cannot live without. And so notice how David puts it. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Wow. What does it mean to find great spoil? Treasure. Treasure. It's treasure that you didn't expect. It's treasure that wasn't yours before and has now become yours. Usually through a war or something like that. David says it's like the war over my soul was won by God and now I get this spoil 
of knowing my Lord as he speaks to me in Scripture, and I just love it. My heart is steadfast for Scripture. And it's out of that steadfast heart that David tastes the blessing of great peace. This is biblical. Uh, The Bible says, if we reproach life with thanksgiving and with prayer and with Scripture, we will have peace. If we approach life in our own way, we will not have peace. Uh, In that verse from Isaiah that we read earlier, God will keep them in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Whose mind is stayed, meaning has found a resting place on God. That's where peace comes from. A few verses later in Isaiah, it says, There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. Right? If the heart is not steadfast for God, then peace, like we're talking about kind of peace, is not available. Comfort, like we're talking about, is not available unless the heart changes. You've got to have a steadfast heart for God's word. Second thing that David has is he lives a steadfast life in God's word. Okay, it's not just that he has a heart for it, but he lives his steadfast, a steadfast life in the practice of Scripture. Uh, this is found in verses 164 to 165, I believe, is where I had this section stopping, maybe 166. Uh, look at what it says on 164. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. Now think about that. Seven times a day. Now, okay, let me, let me do a little sidebar here. In the past, in past church history, people have read this verse, and this is actually where the idea of a monastery and being a monk derived from. Well, David, it says, seven times a day stopped to hear the Bible and praise God for it, and so we must do that as well. And so, well, that's seven hours a day. Guess what that equals? kind of a full-time job, or at least a part-time job, uh, you know, a very heavy part-time job. And so lots of people in the second and third century decided to leave their normal jobs and leave their normal lifestyles, and, you know, some of them grouped up with other people, some of them went by themselves, and they became what we call today monks. And they did this. They observed what is called the hours, seven separate hours throughout the day, which are devoted to prayer and reading the Scripture. Now, I want to say, I don't think that's what David is getting at. (laughs) Although, you know, you would do worse if seven times a day you had it in your phone to stop and pray. I mean, you, you could do worse than that. I don't think David means this in a rigid manner. Instead, what I think he's saying is, all throughout the day. Remember, seven in the Bible stands for what? Fullness. I mean, this is... I've got all the bases covered. That's what seven is. All of it's covered. Seven times a day. Throughout my day, I am recalling to my mind the scriptures. And as I do, I'm praising you for your righteous rules. And that is how I'm experiencing throughout my day this great peace that comes from the law. I'm bringing back to mind who God is and what God has done. I'm hoping in God's salvation by stopping and saying, Lord, show me what you're doing in my life. Lord, thank you that you've told me about your son. Lord, thank you that you've given me an instruction that applies to this situation. Lord, help me to see what instructions apply to that situation. Lord, help me. David says, I'm doing that all the time. 
I'm living a life in steady commitment to turning my eyes to the Bible. Now, if you think of that as too otherworldly, too, um, too monkish, please remember it's just not some kind of rigid, you know, seven specific hours where you stop everything and spend the whole hour praying. This is just simply what I call arrow prayers, where you just shoot them up. Arrow thoughts, where you shoot them up throughout the day. You see something that reminds you of God, and you stop and thank God for it. You see something that reminds you of what you've learned in the Bible, and you stop and think about it for a second. And what that does is it invites the reality of God into your, into your mind. Now, now, the reality of God is already there. You didn't make it happen by thinking about it. But by thinking about it, you become aware of it and perhaps more aware of it than you are of your whatever's bothering you or whatever's, you know, causing so much confusion or sorrow in your life. David lived a steadfast life in God's word. And as best we can tell, David always did this with very few exceptions. And y'all know probably what those exceptions are. Uh, hang with us in the Samuel series and you'll find out if you don't know. There were times he neglected this to great consequence. Lastly, David maintains a steadfast obedience to God's word. David makes a commitment to obey what God says. Verses 167 and 168, my soul keeps, keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. When you hear the word keep, what do you think about? Hmm? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the word in Hebrew. Yeah. Shamar. What do you think about when you hear the word keep? Hold on to. Yeah. Protect. Keep going. Yeah, so perseverance. Keep going. Did you know, um, you know where this word is first used in the Bible? Bible trivia. Y'all ready? The Garden of Eden. The Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And he put the man in the garden to work and keep it. To work and keep it. God designed us to be keepers. Garters, treasurers, treasurers of God's gifts to us. And so when someone is saved by faith in Christ, one of the things that they're given is a rich treasury of truth in the scriptures, a rich treasury of grace in the gospel that they're entrusted with to keep, to guard with their very lives. And part of what that means is that you're responding to what God says in his word with an obedient, willing, and thankful heart. That's all that we see here. My soul, not just me, not just my body, but my soul keeps your testimonies. Meaning, from the deepest core of me, I am guarding, treasuring, 
what you have given to me in your word. I've determined to do that. I know that all my ways are before you, and so I'm not going to hide my ways. Instead, I'm going to devote my ways to become more like your ways as I learn more about it in Scripture. All right, this is David. David has a heart for God's word. He has a life in God's word, and he has a steadfast obedience to God's word. And through those avenues, he learns this, by experience, this peace that passes understanding in his life. Princes persecute him, but he has great peace in the Lord. Now, would you describe David's relationship with God and with the Word as lukewarm? Or lackadaisical? Or nonchalant? Take it or leave it? No. David recognizes something that we all need to recognize. The Scriptures, because they come from God carry with them the very characteristics of God himself. God is infinite. God is eternal. God is unchangeable. Scripture is also sufficient for all that we need to know for salvation and life and godliness. Scripture is clear. God has communicated to us in a way that anybody with a due use of, of means can understand it. Not to say that everything in the Bible is equally as understandable as the next, but in the Bible as a whole, is quite understandable. The Bible is authoritative. When the king speaks, he speaks with the king's seal. When God speaks, he speaks with God's authority. The Bible is necessary. We cannot live without hearing from God and his word. Because God is necessary. You can't live without God. We already said you can't hold a candle to the sun. And you also cannot hold your little piece up against God's great peace that he's wanting to give his people as we learn how to see our lives through a different lens, through the lens of Scripture. This is why Paul, when he's describing what it means to become a Christian, he has several descriptions, Paul does, in his letters. And all of them, I think, are worth studying. Here's one of my favorites. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 where Paul describes becoming a Christian like this. When you heard the word, you received it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. That's a definition, one of the definitions, many of which Paul gives, of what it means to be, become a Christian. The word of God, which you heard from Paul, which you heard from the Bible, is a word that suddenly you stop thinking, this is just another person talking on and on about his own ideas, and you started to have a conviction, God is speaking to me in this this book. God is speaking to me in these words. I want to give my whole heart to this God who speaks. Our confession of faith says this. This is very helpful, I think. Listen to it. And if you want to follow along, by the way, with this, it's got a lot of, you know, older language. You can follow along by turning in your hymnal to the Confession of Faith at the back, which is probably somewhere around eight, page 860, 858, something like that. And, and if you find Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, I'm going to read to you paragraph 2. 856. I was close. 
8.56. This is the chapter on saving faith. Beautiful expression of, of what faith is. Paragraph 2 says this. By this faith, or by saving faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word. For the authority of God himself speaking therein. Why do we believe in the Bible? Because God's authority is behind it. And acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth. Yielding obedience to the commandments. Trembling at the threatenings. And embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. What is faith? Faith is giving your whole response to all of God's word. Now, it's especially resting yourself on Christ in the gospel, but it includes trembling when God threatens, obeying when God commands, you know, embracing everything God promises for you and considering it yes and amen in Christ. You see that? Faith is this big, all-encompassing thing that changes the whole disposition of the heart towards God's words. David says that is how, that gift of faith is how a person comes to know God's perfect peace in their life. When you stop, when I stop trying to figure everything out on my own and sit as a judge of even God himself. Isn't that our natural way? We sit as judges. And if God comes in, we'll judge him too. And maybe even he'll get off if he has a good explanation. Isn't that the way we often are? When someone has saving faith, it switches that. And suddenly, I'm here before the judge. And I say, speak, Lord. And I will respond. How, if you'll help me, I'll respond however I ought to respond to everything you say. Speak. Open my eyes. Do you see now why David would say, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. They've got a treasure that this world cannot give them. Which means, blessedly, they have a treasure this world can't take away. Thoughts? We got a minute or two. Any thoughts? It's all right if not, but I want to give time for it. Yes, uh, Clint? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The peacemaker makes us peacemakers. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, any other thoughts?
I'll pray if not.